Mayor Gloria talks about new incentives to increase housing. This problem is so large, it requires a package of this size with the many different provisions that are in it to hopefully drive change. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We'll hear how the new sheriff's commander for San Diego jails will try to improve a troubled system. It's just looking at the recommendations. What have we been doing? What can we do better? And what can we change? Where is our hot, dry, windy, weird winter weather coming from? And a conversation about the spirit of soul food, race, faith, and food justice. That's ahead on Midday Edition. You've been thinking about helping KPBS with a donation. Why not donate that extra car you no longer need? Pickup is free, and you're supporting KPBS Public Media. Here's how. Visit kpbs.careasy.org. The San Diego City Council has approved a package of reforms and incentives designed to increase housing construction. Mayor Todd Gloria's Homes for All of Us housing package passed the council by an 8-to-1 vote. The new regulations build on the city's efforts to make more construction possible in developed areas of the city. New incentives would allow housing to be built on publicly owned land near libraries and fire stations. It also makes it easier for employers to develop employee housing. Most city leaders applaud the moves, but some residents express concerns about how the new housing regulations will change their neighborhoods. And joining me is Mayor Todd Gloria, and welcome to the program. Thank you, Maureen. Now, what part of this package of reforms do you think will result in the most new construction? Probably the provisions that will have the city comply with Senate Bill 9. This is the statewide law around duplexes, uh, which the city is implementing through the Homes for All of Us uh, package of reforms. You know, that has the potential of converting uh, some properties into duplexes and in some cases uh, quadplexes. Uh, I think that's the kind of small scale density that is very accommodable in most neighborhoods in the city. Um, and now it will be up to individual property owners, individual San Diegans, whether or not they choose to elect to do that. But there are a host of things here that uh, you know could result in significantly more housing. This problem is so large, it requires a package of this size with the many different provisions that are in it to hopefully drive change on what is the problem most San Diegans talk about about the unaffordable rents, the unattainable home ownership, and the rising rates of homelessness on our streets. Now, as I mentioned, part of your housing package, there's a measure to streamline housing that's part of city-owned facilities, like an apartment building with a public library on the ground floor, something like that. Do you have specific sites in mind for this program? I think what this proposal results in is that every time the city moves forward with a branch library or a neighborhood fire station, that will evaluate the site for suitability for housing. You know, Maureen, when I was on the city council, I was extremely effective in building new fire stations and libraries in my council district. My only regret was those very important neighborhood infrastructure projects that we didn't put housing on top of them. So in communities like Mission Hills, where we have a beautiful new branch library that's one story tall, uh, sits on Washington Street, where there are buildings significantly taller than that. It was a missed opportunity to really leverage that public asset to create an opportunity where maybe the branch librarian that works in that library could actually live in the neighborhood that they serve. Uh, So going forward, 
forward. I think we'll be considering every project we do for suitability for housing. And that's a good thing because we already own the land. And when you take that cost out of the development package, that can result in significantly lower rents, rents that working people can afford. Uh, Speaking about affordability, you said in your State of the City speech that you want more new homes to be affordable for the middle class. Is there anything that would specifically require lower selling prices in your housing package? Yes. This proposal includes the notion of taking some of our affordable housing programs that apply for low-income housing and apply those principles for middle-income housing, 80% area median income to up towards 150% area median income. This is middle-class wages that are the kinds of folks who don't qualify for low-income housing but can't afford luxury housing. What that would do would be to give developers the incentive to build those units and then deed restrict them uh, so that we do actually see rents that are attainable for average people. I mean, I also think things like Senate Bill 9 will create more naturally affordable housing. We can't provide enough public subsidy to create the amount of housing we need. And so allowing the market to bear this by building smaller homes that may have fewer amenities, but actually achieve homeownership, that's what's in this plan. Let's talk about Senate Bill 9, which you've mentioned a couple of times. It, it of course, changed single-family zoning and allows up to four units to be built on those lots. But in this particular new city housing package, it won't allow any granny flat incentives, any of the city's incentives, to be used to develop those lots. Why not? At the end of the day, Maureen, what we want to do is make sure that we're producing more housing. But in the case of those subsidies that you're talking about, you know, many folks raised the question about whether or not those were appropriate. What we're saying is that we would waive development fees on the first granny flat, but on anything more than that, if someone's building two or more, that they would have to pay developer impact fees. I think that's a reasonable uh, modification to address some of the concerns that we hear from this proposal that's really only been in place for a year. But this is, a, I think, a reflection of my commitment to continue listening to the community and modifying uh, our policies to match what we're seeing on the ground. Now, that's a modest modification, Maureen, compared to the breadth of the changes that are in this proposal. And the ADUs, of course, are the accessory dwelling units commonly referred to as granny flats, just for people who are listening. So just to be clear, would you say that not having the city incentives for granny flats in SB9 here in San Diego is an effort to slow down the development of multiple units in single-family neighborhoods? I don't think so. I mean, I I realize that every nickel counts uh, when you're doing projects of any kind. But what we're saying is, is that the production of these units and over the last year or so, folks have raised the question about what are the impacts to the broader community? And working with Council President Elo Rivera uh, and other members of the city council, they believe that when you have multiple units beyond the single one, that those can have impacts. And so we want them to pay their park fee, their fire station fee, et cetera. And we're going to do that. And I think that that's a reasonable accommodation for uh, these impacts in communities. But Maureen, I I always want to focus on the impacts that are often not quantified. The impacts of families that are split up because their children or grandchildren can't afford to live in the communities that they were raised in. The impacts when we don't have working class and middle class people to help staff our libraries, you know, check us out at the grocery store. The impacts that we often talk about are in terms of infrastructure, and that's important. But this plan really is intended to really think about those often overlooked impacts that I think have the risk of really detrimentally hurting our economy and our quality of life. 
Another question about how new state laws will be adapted in San Diego. You'll soon be asking the city council to opt in to SB 10, and this is a state law that lets cities streamline the construction of apartment buildings with 10 units or less if they're near transit or job centers. So my question is, are you planning on applying this law to every lot that's eligible, or are there some areas that you want to leave untouched? We're still working on that policy. Um, We're going to include it in our second package uh, that I intend to bring before the city council later this year. But right now, you know, Maureen, the size of our housing affordability crisis is enormous. Uh, And I think that we have to be as open-minded as possible on accommodating this important piece of statewide legislation, Senate Bill 10, here in San Diego. Uh, But, you know, there'll be a public process. We will work with community groups, community planning organizations, affordable housing advocates, and importantly, the city council to figure out what works best for us, just as we have done with the state ADU laws, as we've done with Senate Bill 9. We'll do the same with Senate Bill 10. But it is my full intention to opt into this voluntary statewide program. And by doing so, the city of San Diego will be doing our part to address the statewide housing crisis. And I hope other cities will follow our lead. I believe they will. Now, Mayor, do you have a number in mind as a target for how many new homes you'd like to see generated by the Homes for All of Us housing package? Well, Maureen, it's not so much up to me anymore. You know, the state, through our regional housing needs assessment, uh, gives every jurisdiction a number to hit. And we've been given a very substantial number to hit over the next number of years. We are currently zoned to produce those units. But what we see is that we need to provide incentives to actually create them. But Maureen, I think the question for me and what these policies we're advancing are intended to do is to make sure that we're not building only luxury housing that no one can really afford or or just a handful of subsidized units for the very poor amongst us. We have to make sure that as we work to meet our arena target, that we're building working and middle-class housing. One of the, I think, important parts and most exciting parts in Homes for All of Us is an incentive for developers to build units that have three units or more. For families in San Diego who look around and see a lot of studios, one and two bedroom apartments, they don't see a place for themselves here in San Diego. And Homes for All of Us has an incentive to build more family-style housing. So we will meet our arena targets, but we'll do it with a housing mix that is much more reflective of the diversity of our city and send the message to people who are working hard every day that there is a place for them here in San Diego. Do you have a timeline on how quickly we might see these new developments start, you know, the the developments in, on public land, the developments for ADU granny flats to really start to add to our housing supply? It's tough to say because we didn't get into this problem overnight, Maureen, and we're certainly not going to get it out of it overnight either. What I am is incredibly impatient on this matter. I recognize that the first of the month comes every 30, 31 days, and San Diegans are really caught in a bind. I take lessons from my experience as a city council member. I worked for eight years to update the North Park Community Plan. We got that done in my last city council meeting uh, that I served as a city council member. And here we are about five years after that, and you're starting to see the development in communities. That's not fast enough. We have to do better. But suffice to say, you know, it's going to take some time. But what we have to do is give people hope. And when I talk to San Diegans right now, a lot of them don't have the hope that they can afford to live here, afford to buy a home here, raise a family here. Uh, And that's um, unacceptable. And what San Diegans have is my ironclad commitment to continue to work on this issue every single day so that we can put a roof over everyone's head at a price that they can afford. I've been speaking with San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria. And Mayor Gloria, thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen.
San Diego County jails will have new oversight. The sheriff's department is promoting Teresa Adams Hyder to lead the detention services bureau later this month. This news comes just days after California's auditor published its investigation of county jails, finding the sheriff's department quote failed to adequately prevent and respond to the deaths of individuals in its custody. 185 people have died in custody over the last 15 years, which is among the highest of the California jail systems. And Assistant Sheriff Teresa Adams Hyder joins me now. Welcome. Thank you. As I mentioned, the state auditor released a report that was critical of the practices of staff working in county jails. Uh, here are some of the findings from that report. Instances where people asked for or needed medical and mental health care and did not get it or didn't get it in a timely manner. Inadequate safety checks and the people responsible for investigating in-custody deaths are, quote, not doing so in a thorough, timely or transparent manner. Uh, what is your response to this report? It was hard to take. It's always hard to take information that shows that maybe we weren't living to the standards that was expected. And I recognize the need for us to look at some of these recommendations in that audit and follow through with some of the ideas that have come through, in addition to continuing the ideas that we had already put into play within our jail systems to make it a safer environment for those incarcerated individuals. So really, it's just looking at the recommendations. What have we been doing? What can we do better? And what can we change and maybe open a different set of eyes to look at processes that weren't as good as they should have been or can just be improved. And I want to ask you separately about the number of people who have died by suicide in custody. 52 people over the last 15 years, more than twice the number in other large counties in the state. When asked about this, former Sheriff Gore attributed this to the high number of white inmates in county jails who are statistically more likely to die by suicide, he said. Uh, Do you agree with that assessment? At this point, since I haven't really jumped in with both feet into the detention setting, I don't know enough to speak to that. I do know that incarcerated people are at risk of many things. And of course, we're dealing with some people that may have um, mental health issues already before coming to the jail, as well as being in an environment that's new and and maybe scary for them or some that have been in and out of the system for many years. And at this point, I'll definitely be looking into what we can do to reach out to those people who are at most risk of mental health crises and suicide, for sure. And what will you do as assistant sheriff to address the issues raised in the report and prevent future deaths in county jails? I know there's a lot that has been done by the previous command under Assistant Sheriff Frierson. A lot of great programs have been put in place and a lot of recommendations made by this audit. I think definitely we're going to look at bottom line, where do we need to start and what can we do to make some really um, recommended and needed improvements in our facilities. There are a lot of laws, statutes that we need to follow as a detention facility and looking at how we can use the resources we currently have and identifying ones that we didn't even know that we could seek or use going forward. And that's going to be probably my team. We're going to sit down and start prioritizing where we need to put new staffing, infrastructure changes, new equipment, new Wi-Fi in the facilities to make sure that inmates have access to what they need for mental health care, medical care, their visits to maintain their outlook on life, and not only listening to the community, but I know there are families of incarcerated persons who have expressed their concerns, and I'm willing to listen to what they have to say, issues that they may have, and I would like to hear what they have to say. 
And, you know, much has been said about the role that jails play in addressing the mental health challenges and services of inmates. What are your thoughts on this role? And do you think it needs to be refocused in any way? This is a tough one. And I don't think jails are necessarily where that needs to happen. For years and years, law enforcement has kind of become that if you don't know where to go, call 911. I think the San Diego County has been doing a really great job moving towards a direction where mental health is very important. It's on the forefront. I've been working with uh, Health and Human Services on the mobile crisis response team, recognizing the need for other outlets for individuals who need help who are in crisis. The jail is basically a microcosm of San Diego County, and those people are also going to need mental health treatment. And I think partnering in the future with Health and Human Services and other entities Addressing the needs of that population is very important, and I'm hoping that we can make some really good partnerships with Mobile Crisis Response Team, getting them connections. As we know, people are leaving custody, making sure they still have the resources and that they're not leaving custody and not know what they're going to do. Likewise, if someone is receiving mental health treatment and then they become an incarcerated person, how do we keep that continuity of treatment going, even though now they're in the facility? I think that's really important, and it's something that I'm going to work towards. And you'll be stepping into this role with 27 years of prior experience in the department. Uh, What will you bring to this position with that experience? I have worked numerous positions in the Sheriff's Department. Most of my career was in the law enforcement side, but I did start as a detentions deputy early on. I've hired people as a background sergeant. I've worked in internal affairs, so I've dealt with the accountability side and the corrective action side. I've worked in investigative fields. So I think my experience after 27 years with the different types of disciplines in law enforcement, as well as working with a myriad of stakeholders out in our community, whether it's mental health or addiction or just other community groups. I have a lot of friends, associates, colleagues who I think I can pull on to kind of help me see the bigger picture and bring resources and necessary equipment and personnel to our incarcerated population to make sure we're providing the safe environment for them at all times. And you've certainly touched on this, but this is obviously a critical moment of transition for the department. You're stepping into this new role after Bill Gore's retirement. What kind of leadership do you think the department needs as it looks for a new sheriff? I respect Sheriff Gore and what he's brought to the table. I think uh, acting Sheriff Kelly Martinez is really trying to focus on our people, not only the people who work in our department, but that includes our incarcerated population as well. I think collaboration is a big key. As I said, we are a community partner in San Diego County, the Sheriff's Department, and we need to really work with our partners of all types, of all kinds, of all disciplines to bring resources, to bring a new eye to to what we need in in not only the Sheriff's Department, but specifically our jails and and assist us. And I think our ear is open, my ear is open. Uh, Any future leader that is in this department needs to have that open ear and open eye to what the community wants, expects, and the perceptions. We need an education and a dialogue back and forth with that same population. And I think that's what a leader needs to to bring to the department at this point. I've been speaking with Teresa Adams-Hydar, the new assistant sheriff of the Detention Services Bureau. Commander Adams-Hydar, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your time. The San Diego County Sheriff's Department is also currently involved in a class action lawsuit filed by the ACLU, alleging inadequate living conditions and medical care.
Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can. All right? Thanks. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. San Diego is set to break records today for the heat. We are in the grip of a dry, windy Santa Ana heat wave in the middle of winter. Temperatures could reach 90 degrees along the coast with upper 80s and 90s sprinkled inland as well. A heat advisory is in effect through this afternoon. How long will our heat wave last? When will it rain again? And will we be getting a little winter in our winter? Joining me is National Weather Service meteorologist Alex Tardy. And Alex, welcome back. Thanks for having me on. How unusual is this type of Santa Ana heat wave in February? Yeah, it's very unusual. And I'm sure that's on everyone's mind right now. Is it winter? It's kind of one of those things where you got to pinch yourself after yesterday's heat. Record high, 85 in San Diego. Today, expecting even hotter along the coast. So this is very rare. We're talking temperatures 20 to almost 30 degrees above their averages for February. Why is this happening? Well, uh, with weather patterns, you know, whether it's rain, snow, cold, warm, it's typically something going on across the globe or at least the United States that's extreme. In this case, we have a strong Santa Ana wind, which is not unheard of in February but we also have this massive dome of hot air along the Pacific coast or the California coast. And those two are combining to produce these record hot temperatures. If we had a similar weather pattern in July, we would still be talking about record high temperatures. What's the connection between Santa Ana's conditions and climate change? Well, with Santa Ana's, they're a little bit like El Nino and La Nina. So they, they kind of occur, you know, independent of climate or, or climate change. They're, they're seasonal. So they occur every year, but they don't always occur the same time or the same frequency. So in other words, you know, Santa Ana's typically peak out in December and January. Our fire weather conditions typically, typically peak out in October and November. And these type of events in general, with climate change, are expected to change a little bit. Um, we're actually going to see less of them, but they could be more severe. So in other words, their impacts such as hot temperatures and driving fire weather conditions could be more severe, even though we see less of them. The reason why we might see less is just because Santa Ana's are driven by cold air over the Great Basin. So is this hot weather happening all over Southern California? There's a brush fire in Laguna Beach. Are we in danger of that here? Yeah, so fire weather conditions, you know, we've been talking about this for a while since the rain stopped on January 1st, but we've now gone almost six weeks without seeing really much rain at all uh, or snow almost anywhere in California. So Southern California typically goes first in terms of fire weather conditions deteriorating, and and we're seeing that 
over the past week, the dead fuel moisture, which is the fuel laying on the ground, is at all-time record lows. We do have some green grass on our hills, some flowers, but not much from the rain in December. So our fire weather threat is definitely real. And I think that's extremely evident with what just happened in Laguna Beach with a brush fire erupting near homes there. Is there a red flag warning in effect down here? There's no red flag warning in effect because it is February and the grasses are green, but uh, we're getting into a territory now, the longer we go without rain and the more hot weather and dry weather we have, where we potentially could go into a territory to qualify for red flag warning. Nonetheless, we do have high winds across the San Diego foothills and mountains. Most of us are feeling that with the very dry air, probably on your skin, your sciences, and the temperatures. So the combination of those two are making for what we call elevated fire weather conditions. And it's it's very rare. And it's hard to believe, though, it's February and we're talking this extreme. Is today expected to be the peak of this heat wave? Today's the peak of the winds. So today's the peak of the offshore Santa Ana winds, which means basically we can't get a sea breeze. We won't see that natural cooling from the ocean, the natural air conditioner, because the Santa Ana winds are pushing it out the sea, literally. Today's the peak of that. So yeah, on the beaches and the immediate coast, I think today's the hottest day. But for a lot of other areas, just a mile or two inland, we still could see similar temperatures around 90 on Friday and Saturday, even though we lose most of that Santa Ana wind. Yeah, you touched on this now. There's some very different weather in the forecast for next week. Tell us about the change ahead. Yeah, so a little bit of good news. A storm system is coming down from Alaska. So it's basically going to go up and over this dome of warm air that's giving us these record hot temperatures. It's going to come down from the north swing through quickly. So that means two things. It means drastically colder next Tuesday, Wednesday, all areas, uh, mountains everywhere. It means some precipitation, showers. uh, Don't get too excited. A little bit of snow in the mountains for sure. Showers, wetting rain. That is helpful for our fire weather conditions, but it doesn't look like a long-term change. So it also is going to bring more wind ahead of it and behind it across all of California when it comes through Tuesday and Wednesday. Short-lived. Wow. Okay. Thank you. I've been speaking with National Weather Service meteorologist Alex Tardy. Thank you so much. Thanks again. The growing homeless population is more than what providers and city leaders can handle. And now some want to create a new way to help those who can't help themselves. KPBS reporter Tanya Thorne says it would mean changing conservatorship laws. When you hear conservatorship, you likely think of Britney Spears and the Free Britney movement. When do we want it? Her conservatorship came to an end last November after 14 years. But there's another type of conservatorship that some lawmakers see as a tool to combat the homelessness crisis. We're not talking about an extremely wealthy, very famous uh, celebrity. We're talking about the sickest and most vulnerable people that live on the streets of San Diego and on the streets of cities across the nation. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria wants to expand the current conservatorship law to force more mentally ill homeless people to go into treatment and get off the streets. Right now, the law says people who courts rule as gravely disabled can be placed under conservatorships, which means they can be placed in care against their will. For a portion of these folks, 
they end up in the criminal justice system, um, which I hear very clearly from the public, they are not comfortable with. Um, and there has to be some choice other than leaving them on the streets or incarcerating them in prison. We have to have a better option. He thinks the gravely disabled definition could be expanded. But providers say even if more people can be forced into care, there aren't enough places for them to go. Michelle Cabrera is with the County Behavioral Health Directors Association of California. How does anything change the day after that law is signed if we don't have more treatment beds, more housing, more funding for services? Cabrera says people stand a better chance at long-term recovery when they enter into services voluntarily. The vast majority of people, including people with serious mental illness and or substance use disorder needs, voluntarily, willingly accept both services as well as housing when it is offered to them. Our problem in California is that we have a major deficit of housing that meets the needs of very low-income Californians. Greg Angel is the CEO of Interfaith Community Services. Far too often we have to ask somebody, where did you sleep last night? And is it safe to sleep there again? Because help is not available today. He says addressing conservatorship reform before expanding resources is a backwards way of thinking. So until we have access to these resources, Taking away people's rights who want to access those, those resources who, but who can't just is, is, is going too far and is not something we would advocate for. Carrie Souza has been homeless since 2016 and knows she suffers from a mental illness. You know, I let them know that I, you know, that I have that I have a mental illness and that I, that I need help with my medication and I need to see, I need to have a, um, an eval, you know, but I don't think a lot of people know to say that. She questions what will happen if someone rejects a conservatorship. What if you don't want to do what they're asking you to do? You know, is that going to, is that going to, you know, affect me negatively? You know, am I now not going to get the services that I need? So that would be pretty pertinent. Every Wednesday, Sousa goes to a Humanity Showers event for a shower, food, and clothes. Jordan Verdin, who runs the program, is worried that conservatorships could violate people's trust. And coming out here and speaking to people, you'll get to see a lot of the underlying issues are really deep-rooted in trauma and displacement. And this policies will actually perpetuate the trauma deeper by displacing them and removing them from their communities. But Mayor Gloria says the problem can't continue as it has. Something has to be done in San Diego and see it every single day of people who are clearly not capable of caring for themselves being left on the streets where they're vulnerable, sick, in some cases dying. It's absolutely unacceptable. We have to do something different. He will spend the next year working to change the law. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News. The first years of a child's life can set the course for a lifetime. The First Five First Steps program has been working in San Diego for almost 10 years to help parents provide that good foundation for their children. The pandemic has created many challenges for the program, but also some opportunities. The South Bay region of First Five First Steps says an influx of funding means the program can help 100 more families. And enrollment is now open. Joining me is Michelle Favela, First Five First Steps Program Director in the South Region. Michelle, welcome to the program. 
Thank you, Maureen. It's great to be here. What kinds of services come with enrollment in the First Five First Steps program? So with our First Five First Steps program, as the name states, we are partly funded by First Five San Diego, as well as county and state funds, which allow us to provide free services to families. And we are mainly a family support program. And our vision is that every child reaches their full potential and that parents can feel confident and connected in their role as caregivers. Most common topics that we touch on is learning about child development, all of the developmental milestones, like when a child will walk or talk, be potty trained, the parenting strategies, being able to make healthy choices about children's nutrition, lowering stress, finding adequate child care and preschool. And we offer home visits to families in San Diego County, but more specifically in SPCS through the South Region, formerly known as South Bay Community Services since 2013. Now, it's clear how these services, getting good nutrition, proper care, helps babies and toddlers. But it sounds as if this program also helps parents. Is that right? That's correct. We mainly work with parents who are expecting to have a new baby or parents of newborns because it's crucial during this time, right? We know that by the time a child turns three, their brain is 80% developed and our services provide that support in helping the children in problem solving, communicating, self-control, and helping the parents in navigating that journey through parenting, whether if it's their first baby or if they have older children already. Now, who qualifies for the First Five First Steps program? Most of the families we serve have limited social supports. So for example, military families, newly arrived immigrant or refugee families, teen parents, families with limited income. So basically expectant parents and parents of newborns. How did the program continue to help families during the pandemic? I mean, you had to cut back on things like home visits, right? Yes, that's correct. We had to be quick to be able to adapt services to what was needed. So we immediately stopped in-person visits and we were able to shift to this virtual world, right? And supporting families to get connected to the virtual platform, doing frequent phone calls. So we tried to keep it as close as possible to our in-person services, which meant, you know, still trying to keep that eye contact, even through video, still being able to provide uh, certain materials, sometimes for activities, dropping it off as a no contact to the parents at their home, and then connecting virtually to be able to guide that activity, still providing handouts potentially through screenshots or through email, as opposed to a paper. So we were very creative and our families were very creative too, and sometimes propping up their phones in a way that they could still participate and not having to hold the phone the whole time. Can you tell us how you've seen the first five first steps program make a difference in a family's life? I have been working with the program since 2013. So I've gotten to work with many families, either firsthand or hearing about it through other colleagues. So we definitely have families who come to us sometimes, like I mentioned, with limited supports. So the first questions that we ask is, what do they need? Before we can really get into talking about development and that relationship building and bonding and attachment, we have been able to connect families to those resources in the community, such as, you know, connections to housing supports, connections to food distribution sites, connections to potentially in certain situations, a DV shelter. So that continuous support through somebody who is listening to a family on an ongoing basis and being able to help them navigate through those uncertainties, then we can also get into all of those topics of development and that relationship building with their baby. 
Now, why is the first five First Steps South Bay region able to offer support to more families now? We have been very fortunate to receive additional funding, and that has allowed us to be able to grow our team. So we currently have a team of 13 family support specialists that are serving the South region only. We also serve San Diego County as part of the larger team through the other different agencies and regions. But in the South alone, we have 13 family support specialists. And you're looking for 100 more families to enroll? Yes, that's correct. What's the overall goal of the program? When do you feel like you've succeeded? In our main vision of the program, we want every child to be able to reach their full potential, right? And making sure the parents are feeling confident and connected to their role as caregivers. So when we feel a parent is like, you know what, I I think I got it. I know if I have a new difficulty coming up, I know where to start. I am resourceful. I know where to go. That is the point where we start feeling like we can pull away a little bit. So again, we always want to strive for self-sufficiency. We want to make sure that they know where to access services, where to access resources, how to be self-advocates for their children. And I think that that's the point where we feel like we have made a difference in their lives. And how can families enroll? They can enroll by contacting us through our email address. That is firststeps at csbcs.org. They can also call us at 619-650-1597. And they can also go to our website for more information, which is www.firststepssd.org. I've been speaking with First Five First Steps Program Director in the South Region, Michelle Favela. Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. Reimagining How We Eat to Support Food Justice is the subject of a new book called The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith and Food. Author Christopher Carter, who is also an assistant professor of theology and religious studies at the University of San Diego, joins us to talk about his new book. Reverend Dr. Carter, welcome. Thanks for having me. So tell me about your book and what inspired you to write it. The most important thing to know about the book from the beginning is that it really is a a way for me to express a journey um, that I went on trying to discern how I should eat based upon my own particular kind of moral identity and formation. I was curious as I began to learn more about environmental injustice and the relationships I had to racial injustice and the experience of my grandfather and ancestors with respect to just the exploitation of their labor as Black people. I saw these connecting in ways in which that weren't initially evident to me. And so I decided just to just to learn and explore, you know, um, the backgrounds to Black food ways and the, and the backgrounds to the development of our agricultural system and what role uh, Black people and then just people of color have played in that. What was the most life-changing thing you discovered as you embarked on this journey and wrote this book? Oof. So I do want to preface this by saying the book has many happy, <laughs> has many happy stories as well. But among the most life-changing, soul-altering things I encountered in the book is my research on plantations, particularly Louisiana, which is where my father's side of my family is from. And just looking through archives, looking through resources and learning just how 
uh, enslavers really had dehumanized black people to the extent that, you know, they were very specific about the kind of black person they wanted, right? So like if they were going to be buying someone to um, work in the rice fields, you know, in North Carolina, they were going to be looking for black people from a particular tribe, you know, um, the Sydney Gambia region um, in West Africa. If they're going to be looking for black people who were going to be good with cattle, they're going to be looking for another, you know, to buy a black person from this particular tribe. And so there was a, you know, a science to it from their perspective that was very much wrapped up in, you know, capitalism. And, and I think I just didn't, consider the depth through which that that nuance was brought to this particular process and how they had dehumanized black people to that extent that was you know jay that was probably among the hardest things i had to read and write uh, throughout the entire process of about five years writing this book Hmm. and you pretty much sum it up there but but talk about uh, the ways in which race food and food justice connect yeah i think the history of food and the, the growing of food in our country has wrapped up in, in racial hierarchy, you know, beginning with the genocide of indigenous peoples and the confiscation of lands, both legally and illegally. The development of learning how to, you know, grow certain foods, starting again with indigenous folks teaching European colonialists how to survive when they come to America. And then the beginnings of the plantation, where you import this kind of African agricultural knowledge that shows folks, that teaches uh, Europeans, again, how to cultivate these crops in particular ways. And that kind of hierarchy stays in place. There's this assumption within the way we construct our food systems in America that people of color in particular are the kind of folks who are good laborers, who are good for tending the land, right? for growing the food necessarily, but not necessarily owning the land or being in charge of of the means of production of food. And so from the the beginnings of our country, uh, race and the racial hierarchy plays a huge role in it. And we we see that today. If you ever drive down the five, you see the ways in which those spaces are populated by predominantly Latinx um, immigrants and just the racial hierarchy that's in place in in that space. Now, with respect to religion, I think the role religion can has historically played in this is either in normalizing, unfortunately, some of the conditions that people have been placed in that put them in positions to where they are working for in, in these conditions that we would know to be inhumane, or as a mechanism by which uh, can be used to argue for justice, right, for these people. So you think of someone like Cesar Chavez, who's deeply and profoundly moved by his Catholicism, right? Like his notion of what it means to be connected to God is wrapped up in also what it means to be able to grow and serve food that's connected to this sacred source, this, this land, as he would call it. And and, and, and so, so there's a way religion can, can be deeply involved in multiple ways, but racial hierarchy has always been involved. And we see that being played out today in terms of the implications and impact of those historical injustices. In your book, The Spirit of Soul Food, you talk about reimagining what soul food could be. Tell me about that. For me, reimagining soul food begins with saying, okay, how and in what ways might I eat today in a way that does honor to my ancestors that actually uh, also contributes to the alleviation of suffering? And so I argue in the book for something I call uh, soulful eating, of which veganism is an, is an important part of it. Part of the reason I argue about veganism is the ways in which I've already discussed this notion of uh, animalization and dehumanization of people of color. And there's a way in which this is wrapped up in our industrial agricultural system, particularly factory farms. 
in the ways in which they are still structures of racial hierarchy that disproportionately harm people of color. So reimagining soul food really is about recreating recipes and purchasing food and, and cooking foods in ways that is honored to our ancestors, but also take seriously the contemporary implications of our global food system. So give me an example of a dish that does that. I mean, what's your favorite soul food dish? Oh, it's red beans and rice. It's, well, it's tough. It's really close between red beans and rice and, and dressing. So <laughs> but red, red beans and rice, again, you know, again, from Louisiana. So, you know, I grew up on a lot of beans and rice, a lot of gumbo, a lot of greens. Um, cornbread dressing was like a um, treat that my mother would make from time to time. And, and so one thing I, I should also say, too, is because my family was poor, um, we just didn't eat a lot of meat. We ate a lot of beans because that's what a lot of poor people eat. And so for me, it was really just about removing the meat products that I would put in that and either substituting it with meat or not. You know, when I eat red beans and rice, it takes me back to that place when I was growing up. It gives me that sense of comfort, that sense of connectedness. And so that affective dimension of what it means to be in community, I think that's what we find in soul food. That's what we find in soul. And I have some recipes in the book that offer some opportunities to do that, but there's tons of other, I'm not really a chef. I just like to cook. That's what I told them <laughs> when I put them in there. So I just gave them my right? taste of some recipes. <laughs> I love to eat now. I love to eat. So I love to eat. So what do you hope people walk away with after reading your book? My hope is that, you know, people read the book and they're moved by the compassionate framework that I use and, and that they have some hope and they have some tools so they know what to do in their own lives to begin to address issues of food injustice. I've been speaking with Christopher Carter, an assistant professor of theology and religious studies at the University of San Diego and the author of The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith, and food justice. Reverend Dr. Carter, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.